I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. Take a shot at betting the NBA with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. Welcome in. It is a Tuesday in a Wednesday edition of New York, New York with yours truly. JJ, John Shostremsky, we are right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And normally there would be a sense of FOMO for a Syracuse Villanova game being played at Madison Square Garden. But I'm not going to lie to you folks. When I'm down in Fort Lauderdale and it's 80 degrees and I was running on the beach and there's a tea time tomorrow Not a whole lot of FOMO when we're talking about December, January, any of the winter months when we're talking about the Northeast. Maybe it means that I'm getting old and that I'm going to be a snowbird. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're looking for a thought to make you feel warm, I got one for you New York Mets fans. And I think it's the sort of thought that if you're a Mets fan, you should be praying for because in many ways... It's going to make this MLB lockout that much more disgusting for me to kind of handle, deal with, digest, all combined into one. The Mets already have made a monster splash with Max Scherzer. It's a game changer. It's been well documented. As they are now searching for the next manager, and there are a bunch of candidates that are being thrown out there. Brett Ausmus because of his connection with Billy Epler. Bob Guerin, because he was on Terry Collins' staff, and he was with the Dodgers the last few years. He's well-respected. Joe Espada, a guy the Yankees interviewed back at the end of the 2017 season. These were all fine choices, for the most part. I don't love Osmus. The other two, I think, are terrific. But there is a choice that stands out above any of these three. And it's the choice that would drive me up a wall and would make me absolutely sick. That's the idea of the Mets going and hiring Buck Showalter. I think you guys all know the deal. I want Buck to manage the Yankees. I wanted that storyline to come full circle. Buck's a program builder. He's won everywhere he's gone, but he hasn't gotten to the top of the mountain. 
The idea of Buck going to the Mets with Cohen's money, with Scherzer there, and now with this ringing endorsement that Max Scherzer apparently, according to a report, wants Buck to be the manager. Well, then what are you waiting for if you're the Mets? The guy he just brought in and gave $42, $43 million a year said, yeah, go hire that guy. He's right about that. Buck Showalter is a difference-making manager. And if you're looking to win back pages and you're looking to tweak and annoy the other fan base in town, hiring Buck Showalter is going to do exactly that. Like, that is in the playbook of the George Steinbrenner regime and taking former Mets like David Cohn and Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden and the list goes on and on and bringing them in. That's exactly, exactly, exactly what George used to do. So now all of a sudden, Cohen is going to go down that road? Oh, it makes, it makes me want to cringe. Makes me sick. But that is exactly the manager the Mets should hire. Also because of the fact that he's really damn good at his job. And I think he would help the Mets a ton in 2022 and beyond. So we'll have Bobby Valentine, a guy who won a lot for the Mets. He's got a new book out. We'll find out if Buck is his leading choice. Now, as far as the hoops are concerned, there's a lot of talk about the Knicks and their starting lineup and what exactly can you do to get this team that's been in a funk for about the last month going once again. Poppin needs to play more. We've discussed that a ton. They put Nerlens Noel in the starting lineup. Is that the reason they went out and won convincingly against the San Antonio Spurs? No. But listen, Knicks have had plenty of games this year against sub-fire teams, sub-par teams, where they have not delivered. This is a game where they delivered. This was exactly the sort of comfortable game you needed with a team basically playing the second night of a back-to-back. And it's nice to see R.J. Barrett Look like a flourishing star once again. Seven of eight from beyond the three-point arc. Maybe Tom Thibodeau trying to strike a little bit of a nerve within RJ about the idea that his shot is not there. Little Jedi mind trick. Hey, he's going to go seven of eight from three. I hope he put up 10 zillion shots. I hope Tom Thibodeau continues to talk trash and trying to fire up his dude. Love it. Absolutely love it. You want to draw over the fact that New Orleans Noel gave you nine rebounds? Great. It was kind of a so-so game from Julius Randle. Uh, the bench does its job. And listen, Robinson coming off the bench gave him a spark. Toppin's got to play more. 13 minutes for Obi Toppin, to me, is not nearly enough. But the Spurs are not any good. I know you look at the Knicks history in San Antonio over the last 25, 30 years. It's awful. But I guarantee you most franchises around the NBA have the exact same results. The Spurs have been this model franchise for a long, long time. They're not at this moment. They're clearly in a retool. Thankfully, the Knicks did not mess around here, and they got a game they needed after Saturday. Monster game from Barrett. And now you look at their next couple. Indiana, with all the rumors about guys they might be trading. Toronto, who they have coming up over the weekend. Go get those games. I don't care if they're on the road. No excuses. Time to start beating the teams you are supposed to beat. Knicks haven't done a good enough job of that so far this year. And if they're going to be a playoff team and they want to avoid somehow, some way, first they get in, but then if you want to be in that top six, you got to win these games far more consistently. So we'll see if 
We look back on Tuesday as the start of the Knicks getting back to winning ways against those sub-500 type teams. And good win for the Nets. Nets were down in this game. Looked like a game in many ways that they were going through the motions. To see Durant and Harden turn on the Jets late, make big plays, get a couple of big stops, force a couple of big Doncic turnovers, good win for Brooklyn. Brooklyn's exactly where they need to be. It's a matter of Harden complimenting Durant and getting that sort of top flight 1-1A on a consistent basis, especially leading in the postseason games. But even without Kyrie, listen, they're 10, they're 11 games over 500. Nothing to worry about from a Brooklyn standpoint. These next couple of weeks are very, very important from a Knicks state of mind because they don't have the ability to just know, hey, we're rolling out of bed, we're making a postseason, we're going to be a top three seed. The Nets have that sort of capability within them. The Knicks do not. So the Knicks can't be messing around with teams like the San Antonio Spurs. That just sounds weird, by the way. The Knicks can't be messing around with a team like the San Antonio Spurs. I remember when the Knicks were once and won in San Antonio for like the first time in 20 years. I, I was like celebrating. That was one of the most euphoric Knicks regular season wins of like the last 15 years. Now it's like, yeah, you should, you should beat the Spurs. Weird times. Weird times. Even the NBA can be flipped on its axis every now and again. We got a load of chill for you. Bobby Valentine's going to join us. He's got a new book out. I'm looking forward to that. My dude, Coach Jason Crafton, who is an up-and-comer. He's got Maryland Eastern Shore fighting. He's a Brooklyn guy. So I love coaches that have New York ties. I love coaches that go on the road when they're like 30-point underdogs and almost went outright against top 25 teams. We show them a little bit of love on the pod. So Coach Crafton's going to join us. We got Trivia Tuesday. I think it's going to be fun to monitor for Saruti how tan I get over the next week or how red I get. A lot of SPF over the next few days, but I'm still fun. You know, Giant fans have been talking all sorts of smack about my crowd and my quarterback. You know how much I've gotten on that? Not from Twitter, but like my Giant fan buddies. I'm just like, guys, shut up. <laughs> I don't want to hear it right now. Your team just scored, what, nine points. My quarterback, Nick Dimes, you up and down the field. You, you could sit on that. Hopefully the Dolphins and the Giants don't play for the next, I don't know, like five or six years. So I can bask in the glory of Sunday's victory that much more. Bobby Valentine, your calls, all that and more coming up next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So we're going to welcome in a guy that New Yorkers know very, very well. And I think he's one of the great baseball characters, quite frankly, of the last 30 to 35 years. I mean, you think about his time, George W. Bush. You think about his time in Japan. But for New Yorkers, and for me at least, he will forever be the manager of the New York Mets. He's got a new book out. It's fantastic. Valentine's Way. Here he is, the great Bobby Valentine. What's up, Bobby V? 
Yeah, me and you, John, we're just doing it. We're rocking it here. You're in Pompano. I'm in Stanford, Connecticut. And uh, imagine we're rocking it together. This is cool. That yeah. is the beauty of technology, my friend. Yeah. And uh, it's a thing of beauty that I can be here and spend a couple of minutes with you. And first off, congratulations. Um, you've been busy the last couple of months, as we oh, know. Yeah. But what inspired you to uh, finally decide to say, you know what? I, I think I got to put a book together. What was like the the inspiring uh, piece of reference that kind yeah. of pushed Bobby V over the edge here? Well, it was COVID-inspired, actually. You know, I was uh, uh, director of uh, athletics at Sacred Heart University, but we were spending a lot of time at home. And even when we were on campus, there weren't uh, games going on. A lot of the practices were canceled. So uh, I got a little bored. And uh, Peter Golenbach a guy from Stanford, Connecticut, who's written uh, many a sports book, gave me a call out of the blue and said, hey, why don't we do a book together? And I said, why don't we do a book together? And we did. And uh, it's Valentine's Way. It's out there. I think it reads pretty well. And people are reading and are getting a kick out of it. So that's cool. You know, Bobby, obviously, knowing your baseball background, for me and for a lot of New Yorkers, you're the manager of the Mets. But your time in Japan, I mean, if you get out of New York City or you get out of Stanford and you get out of the tri-state area, you are like this conquering hero when you go back to Japan. So do you identify more with Bobby Valentine, Japanese savant, or do you identify more with Bobby Valentine, Met Manager? Well, I'm wearing a Japanese uh, uh, jacket. I just came in from walking my dogs, but I, I'm more... Um, the Mets guy, you know, uh, you know, I, as the book says, I played for him in the seventies. I coached for him in the eighties. I managed them in the nineties in the double odd. So, you know, uh, I spent some time with the Mets. I, I, I put a lot of my uh, heart and soul into everything that I did there. And um, a couple of cool stories in the book. I'm sure you never, you never realized that that's what was happening when I was managing the Mets, huh, John, but um, uh, you know, most of my, most of my time was spent uh, at uh, beautiful Shea Stadium. And uh, I like to think that that I'm kind of a Met guy. Yeah. Okay. So you get the Met gig. The Mets are kind of in the middle of this, like, terrible period. You know, the worst team that money can buy. The mid-1990s from, like, 94, 95, they're brutal. Bobby, you go to the Mets – and you turn the team around. They're playing a different brand of baseball. The team, in many ways, took on your personality. When did it become apparent to you that you had something cooking with those Met teams in the late 90s? Was it Piazza and the idea of getting Mike to the team in 1998? Or did you kind of sense a little before that, I got this thing going in the right direction? Well, you know, I... I really think it's when I spent some time down in Venezuela and, and Dominican Republic and I started seeing some of the players we had coming, especially uh, Edgardo Alfonso and, and Melvin Mora, who was down there out of nowhere. You know, he was playing in Taiwan and then I saw him playing in Valencia, Venezuela. And um, when when Ray and Fonzie and then we got uh, Robin Ventura along with uh, Johnny Olerud and and we started doing stuff in the infield you know basically shifting you know we would shift on on bump plays we would shift shift on a man on third third base in less than two outs um, we would do things in the infield that I think 
uh, inspired people to, you know, 10, 15 years later, decide that they're really going to shift all the way on the other side of the field. And um, when everyone bought into that and then we got Mike uh, Piazza, uh, it seemed like it was it was a real team and it was clicking. Am I crazy to say, Bobby, that your 99 team was better than the 2000 team that went to the World Series? I know 2000 was a special year. Who let the dogs out? Taking on the Yankees in the World Series. But you hit on that infield. Ulrich at first. Fonzie. Ray Ordonez. Robin Ventura. That 99 team with the way you guys played in the second half of the year and even the comebacks in that Atlanta series. I'm a Yankee fan. I wanted no part of playing you guys in 1999 because I was like, that team... That team's got something going on right now that's scary. You manage both yeah. teams. Which one was yeah. better? Well, you know, 99 was more fun. Uh, obviously, 2000 went further. But, uh, you know, 99 was that group that we were really coming together. You know, 97, 98, 99, it was building. By 2000, we knew what we had, and then we knew we had a job to do. Uh, we and we got to the World Series and then uh, stumbled and fell a little. Um, I guess Timo stumbled and fl- fell and a few other little things. But, um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a good group of guys there for five or six years. And, and that's what, what it's all about. When you get guys who enjoy other guys having success, I think that's really the key to a team. And that's what we were building. You know, it was okay for Johnny Franco to – to be rooting for Armando Benitez because even though uh, Armando took over the closing role and, you know, for, for the guys who weren't playing the Benny Agbayanis and the Todd Pratt's to just be rooting, you know, the Sean Dunstan's uh, who came along, who were the other guys on the team, not the starting guys on the team, but they really, really wanted to see their teammates do well. When you have that kind of feeling going it. It's a good place to be. You mentioned this in the book. Was that one of the toughest managerial sort of decisions, controversies you ever had to deal with? The idea of taking a beloved figure like Johnny Franco out of the ninth inning. He's a local boy. He's Brooklyn. He's Staten Island. And you're going to Armando Benitez. Like, And it was the right call because Johnny thrived in a set-up spot. Armando, aside from, you know, a ton of big games, Armando saved 40-plus games for you guys. You think about tough decisions over your managerial tenure with the Mets. Is that atop the list, Bobby? Yeah, yeah. Personnel decisions, yeah. Uh, I think it was tough. But, again, it was um, I was dealing with a great person. And Johnny got it, and he wanted to be part of the team. He knew we were winning ball games, and he wanted to be, you know, part of it. And he was a big part of it. No doubt about that. That 2000 World Series. Now, full disclosure, Bobby, I was very happy with the result. I know a lot of the listeners were not particularly happy. Full disclosure, John, I wasn't very happy. I know. I just, I know that. And I'm not trying to throw salt in the wound. Trust me on that. I'm actually trying to buddy up, quite frankly, because every single one of those games, even game two, you guys are down five or six runs. You fight back against Mariano Rivera. And I do believe, and I know you hinted at this a few minutes ago. Game one changed the entire complexion of that series. Timo falling down, the O'Neill at bat in the ninth inning against Armando Benitez. You think that World Series goes differently if the Mets find a way to close out things in the bottom half of the ninth inning and win game number one? 
Yeah, probably. I think it goes differently. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, the Yankees were still feeling themselves. You know, they 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 weren't the world championship team when they got to the World Series. They they struggled through the playoffs a bit. They struggled through the season a little bit. And, uh, you know, they, they had this consecutive game win streak of World Series games. And uh, if we were to knock that, you know, streak out in the game one instead of game three, uh, I think it would have been a lot different. Yeah. And throughout, you know, those games in the Subway Series, even going back to the regular season, Bobby, there was an intensity in the building. Like, I remember being at the Matt Franco game, which is one of the best regular season games I've ever seen. I, I didn't get the result I wanted, but just it was haymaker after haymaker. Piazza hit one of the furthest home runs I think I've ever seen in my life. It, everybody's jaw dropped when they watched that one. Did you guys go into those games with all the success that the Yankees had had during that time period with like this major us against the world, chip on your shoulder type of deal? Because you guys were a good squad. You guys had a bunch of gamers on your team. And I feel like in many ways, Bobby, playing the Yankees brought out the very best in you guys. Well, John, you know, the, the problem with playing the Yankees twice, as we did in the interleague series uh, there in 99, um, was that it was tiring. You know, it was everybody had to answer questions from the beginning of spring training about the interleague series games, not about the Atlanta Braves, not about the Phillies, not about the, the Dodgers who who are in the West or any of that stuff. It was about what's it going to be like to play those six games against the Yankees. Can you can you knock them off the throne? Can you win the Subway Series? Can you get to the World Series? You know, there were those questions that the one big difference about New York and other places isn't so much that it's different uh, questions that are being asked. It's just that the questions get asked more often and they become repetitive and and sometimes you want to give them a different answer because you're so tired of giving the same darn answer over and over again and um yeah you know it got tiring i i'm you know very good friends with joe tory and the one thing we talk about the most is just how draining not the subway world series because that was spectacular it was so exciting in our city and, and in the country. But, um, you know, those interleague games during the regular season, how much more important it seemed that one game was than just one game. But you go back to your old interviews, which I used to love as a kid with Mike <laughs> and Chris. And even if there were tiring questions, Bobby, it felt like, you always got up for those interviews. You were like, yeah. I'm we did good radio, man. Guys. Good, we, good radio. We did, it was, we did it good was radio. epic. It was epic radio. Like, I think about some of these managerial interviews I hear now. They're boring. Mm, they're a waste mm, of time. Mm, oh, mm, Bobby, they suck. I hear I, you, you with those guys, you never knew what you were getting. Did you, like, did you kind of, like, take satisfaction at, like, the idea that you could go back and forth with these guys? Because, like, some of the managers in this town – they couldn't do that. You, on the other hand, my friend, you could. Well, thanks for remembering, John. It wasn't about necessarily going back and forth, but it's about giving our fans what they needed, you know. And, and you know, Mike was just such a crazy, crazy um, Yankee fan that um, 
you know, it, it was hard to have him gloating all the time, you know. And Chris was, uh, you know, trying to get the headline every time he, he was there. And he was always fun. I thought that the the three of us, Chris and Mike, Chris and the Mad, Mike and the Mad Dog and, and Bobby V, those uh, four or five years, I mean, that that made a little difference with the fans, that the fans did only have a baseball game to look forward to, but they had an, a radio interview to look forward to, too, because you didn't know what was going to come out of it, which made it really cool. Yeah. Take me through September of 2001, because I think one of the lasting legacies you left in your time as New York Met manager is everybody's dealing with the tragedy of September 11th. And the Mets really stepped up. And you specifically really stepped up. And listen, I think New Yorkers remember that. I know that this city and the FDNY and the police department, everybody coming together meant a whole lot to you. But take me through those days, Bobby, as you know, you're at the ballpark. Instead of going to work, instead of you know, managing your team in a pennant race, you're handing out waters. You're trying to help grieving loved ones. Like that, in many ways... That's the legacy of Bobby Valentine, more than disguises and, you know, World Series appearance and all the good stuff you did on the field. Bobby, that's just as important, if not more. I appreciate that, John. You know, you, you, you really, uh, you got it. You're, you're, you're on top of all this stuff. And, yeah, you know, there, there was just so much to do. And, you know, when I look back now 20 years ago and, and during that whatever two-year period, um, from 9-11 through uh, maybe 2002 at the end of the season. Um, there was just so much to do, and I, I just wanted to do it all. I wanted to, to, to heal the wounds. I wanted to, you know, hug the, the moms. I wanted to help bring up the kids. I wanted to erase the, the, the bad guys off the map. I mean, I wanted to do everything, and... and uh, I really should have done a little more with baseball at the time. Um, I mean, I still was committed to doing everything I was doing in uniform, but I was distracted and my, my heart and, and my mind at times were, were in other households with other people and, and doing uh, kind of other things. And uh, I, I, I don't regret that I did it because it's been a silver lining in my life. I made great friends over the years, some of the families are still like my family. Um, but, you know, there, there was a job to do, and I probably, I probably was distracted. Yeah. Well, you know what? The distractions were worthwhile, I think, to a whole lot of people within this area. And selfishly, on a much lighter note, I got to know, 2007, Joe Torre's tenure with the Yankees comes to an end. And I was, it bothered me because I love Joe. He won all these championships for my team. I, I want him to manage forever. It's a business, Bobby. You know that. When I was thinking about replacement stuff and guys who would be very different, I know you and Joe are very, very close. I remember speculating. I was like, Bobby V. Could you imagine if Bobby V in 2008 came and managed the New York Yankees? Was there ever any chatter? Going back after Joe Torre left the Yankees, did that ever uh, materialize in any way? I don't think so. I was I was in Japan and I was pretty uh, committed to doing what I was doing there. There was chatter about the Dodger job, and I think that might have been before Joe got it. Um, 
I don't know, I can't put all those years in perspective, but um, I did have some conversations with the then owner of the Dodgers. And I think um, the general manager I was talking with got fired as I was talking to him about going to, to, to be the manager or talking to him about the Dodgers. But um, the Yankees were, you know, that, that would have been an amazing situation. Um, I don't know how the fans would have taken it. I think they would have understood. Oh, they would have. They would have loved. You still winning games. You go on a ten-game winning streak, Bobby. That's all. Darryl and Doc got standing ovations. Johnny Damon got standing ovations. Clemens of all people got standing ovations. So come on now. I could have broken that barrier. Good point. Yeah, but uh, it just timing's everything in life, and uh, that wasn't the right timing. The Clemens situation. Did did you look back on it now and? You know, it's it's impossible to like go into like a bench clearing brawl in Game Two yeah. of the World Series. You don't want guys suspended. No, you don't want to lose a guy like Piazza. But what he did in that game was an absolute joke. Throwing a bat, like does yeah. that looking back on it now, are you okay with the way you know your team handled the proceedings after the fact, or did did that in any way kind of distract you guys? You think in that World Series? Well, you know, it's World Series, and so I wanted to make sure it was a, it, we we're giving a good impression to the world, you know, and that, um, you know, we weren't going to fight each other because it's a baseball game. But I think I could have done more with the umpires to get Roger thrown out of the game. You know, I was trying to be cool and diplomatic. I think if I if I did that emotional thing, you know, and started yelling and screaming and insisting that, uh, you know, we've had enough and you got to throw them out of the game, it might have been different. And I think considering they went into that game, being told that there's the Clements Piazza history, you guys as umpires have to be ready to control it at the first drop of the hat. This is your job. And they were told, you've got to control it. And when that happened, everyone was kind of stunned. You know, it was kind of so freaky that it happened that I should have been the one to to get emotional. But when Mike didn't, uh, and it was the World Series, and, uh, you know, we were asked to be on our best behavior, uh, I, I think I, I brought the throttle down a little too much. I'll never forget, I'm starting my radio career at FAN. I think it's 2011. You got hired by the Boston Red Sox. And this is one of my first shows, Bobby. I'm like, <laughs> what a great hire. I was like, this is the this is the perfect guy to kind of bridge the gap from Tito. Because, listen, Tito had won the two championships. He's never going to have to buy a drink in that town ever again. Uh, don't You, want, you don't want to be reminded of 2000. I don't want to be reminded of 2004 ever again. So I thought you'd kill it in Boston. You, you didn't get much of a chance. You got one year. What went wrong there? Bobby V wins everywhere. Why, what was it about Boston that didn't lead to success? Well, I think just like coming into the Mets, coming into the Rangers, going over to Japan, you know, that first year is, it's not a magical situation. The first year is an evaluation situation where you really have to weed out the week. You've got to get the people who are going to be on the same page as you on the same page. And uh, there were a lot of people who needed to be weeded out. And I thought that was my job my first year. It's kind of like when I got, uh, when I took over the Mets, you know, I remember Joel Sherman coming in after a couple months on the job. He says, you're, you're doing nothing. 
you're doing not watching your manager doing nothing. There's nothing going, nothing special going on here. I said, oh, I'm doing everything. I'm figuring out who it is that needs to stay and who it is that needs to go. And, um, you know, I thought that was my job. My first year, I had a two-year contract. Larry Lucchino always said, hey, make sure you make it happen the first year so you know what you're doing the second year. You'll have your own coaches the second year. And the second year never came to pass. Yeah. Just goes to show you, not every situation is going to be the right one. You were in a lot of good situations. That situation, unfortunately, you, you didn't end up getting the, uh, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But you know what you did get, Bobby V? You get more success in Japan. You get a book that's coming out. I got, oh, I got two more years titles. salary for working one, John. That's not and, and even better. You know, I didn't <laughs> even think about that. Financially speaking, you were taken care of. Um, I love the fact that you built this relationship with George W. Bush. Does that still exist to this day? Oh, sure. Yeah, George, George is a good person, you know, and we, we hung out together. And, um, yeah, if he's in New York and I'm in New York and – you know, he has the time we get together. Every time I've always seen him, it's been a real cordial thing. We send our Christmas cards back and forth to each other. Matter of fact, I just got his yesterday. So, um, yeah, he's a good guy. He loves baseball, too. That's not fake. You know, with a lot of these he politicians, really liked- you wonder if they love baseball. He strikes me as a guy who's a baseball lifer. If he had his brothers looking back, I think he would rather have been the commissioner of baseball than being the president of the United States. I could tell you. And he was as on much the path to do that. might be getting, it's, it's 100 times worse. That's why I'm, for you, in, in the, the soiree of politics, what prompted that? I mean, listen, everybody loves Bobby Dean. check it out. I know you can make a difference, yeah. but you know the deal with politicians. You got half the, the country, half the world hates you. So you sure you want to get yourself into that, Bobby V? <laughs> well, you know, when you're net manager, you got half of the city hating you as Yankee fans. Uh, I didn't really want to do the politic thing. I want to do the governance things. This is my hometown. You know, it's a big city now turning into a bigger city. We have 140,000 people on the way. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure it went in the right direction. I wanted to do the things that needed to get done with leadership. I wasn't playing the political game. I was an unaffiliated candidate. I built my candidacy from the ground up, John. I had no roadmap. I had no donations from a politi- any political hacks. I didn't have you know, any of that wagon that I had to pull along to promise people jobs. So I just tried to do it on my own and you know, got 14,000 votes and I needed uh, 15,000 votes. And that's the name of that game. Well, it's unfortunate I'm not a Stanford resident because I could have uh, oh, that, enhanced your that total That shouldn't keep you from voting, though, John. I mean, what well, the hell? <laughs> well, listen, maybe we'll uh, get a residence in Connecticut and Stanford next time you run. And, you know, you have next an extra time vote you or two. It, yeah, and final one, because a lot of Met fans are wondering yeah. about their next manager. And I think a lot of Met fans are hoping, quite frankly, their next manager has a lot of the characteristics and qualities that you bring to the table. I think Buck Showalter's a slam dunk. I think he should be the next guy. Where do you stand on Buck, his next manager of the Mets? Would he be your choice? Uh, I'm not going to do that because uh, actually I'm being asked my opinion by some people. And, um, I, you know, I know Buck. I worked with Buck. I think he'd be a fine manager anywhere he managed, you know. And uh, I don't know who all the candidates are out there, so I don't want to slight anyone because whoever is in that seat, I'm going to be rooting for well, Bobby, we're going to be rooting for this book. It was a gem. Uh, I know a Thanks. lot of people are going to be looking forward to reading it. So 
Where can they find the book? Valentine's Way. Good holiday gift, I assume. Yeah, you bet. It's on uh, Amazon. It's on all the uh, internet sites that are out there. It's in Barnes and Noble and probably in it, all the bookstores that are around. So um, yeah, Valentine's Way. It's a pretty good read, and uh, hopefully they'll they'll reach out, give someone a gift, or read it for themselves. Bobby, Merry yeah. Christmas, Happy Holidays. Appreciate yeah. a couple of minutes, man. Don't be a stranger. Good job, right? I'll dude. see you at Bobby V's in Stanford. Anything and everything. Thanks, John. All right, folks, voicemail time. You know what to do. 917-382-1151 is where we make our magic. Let's make a little magic right about now. So, Rudy, let's hit it. JJ, it's uh, Anthony and Syosset. Listen, congratulations on your Dolphins' victory. You not only won the game, you covered. You had a nice weekend in South Beach. I'm sure you're giddy. Uh, two things I want to say. Just w- one thing that finally just really sunk in for me today um, as, as I'm watching the Giants play. And granted, it's with a backup quarterback, and granted, it's with a lot of injuries, but there really is no future, uh, I feel, with the Giants for Barkley. Um, you know, I saw shades of what could have been a, a above-average running back career early on, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And now you talk post-surgery, you know, post-bad legs. Booker, to me, is not only the better runner. He, You can't even compare the blocking. I saw some, you know, third-down plays today where, Mike, you know, Booker was making blocks that Barkley, there, there's no way he can make. And what I'm trying to say here is Disco Jay, one year left, see what you can get for him, even if it's not a first-round pick, which there's no way you get a first-round pick. Now, there's got to be teams out there. Buffalo comes to mind. That are going to be looking for running help in the offseason. He just made the decision that much easier in terms of not re-signing him as Mahomes just throws a pick here. So, you know, to me, the run with Barkley is over. It's not just him. There's there's a lot. I think you said it best, clean house. Um, and speaking of cleaning house, JJ, can you give NYCFC maybe two minutes at some point this week on the podcast? They may be the only championship the Yankee Stadium has seen in over a decade. Can you give NYCFC a little love this week, Disco Jay? Thank you. Appreciate it, Anthony and Syosset. Now, full disclosure, I could not name one player on NYCFC. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Couldn't name one player. Saruti probably, even though he is far more of an international soccer kind of guy, I'm sure he could give me a little tutorial and a little bit of a crash course. I'm actually intrigued if this is something the New York, New York audience is going to be into over the next couple of days. I'm intrigued. Feel free to share on our voicemail line. I'd love to know. It doesn't exactly move the needle as far as I'm concerned, but you know what? I'm not everybody. So, a little food for thought there. Number two, you nailed it with Barkley. Now, I'm not going to get on my high horse and pat myself on the back, even though, you know what? I am going to pat myself on the back for acknowledging what a terrible, ill-advised, foolish pick it was from a Giants standpoint. And it had nothing to do with what my feelings were towards the career that Barkley was going to have. It had everything to do with where the Giants were at as a franchise. But they're rebuilding again. Barkley is about to get paid, what, a year from now? I would dump him in the offseason. He does not have a future with the Giants. And I think the best thing for Saquon Barkley in many ways would be to get the hell out of here. Go on a winning team. Go to a team that's got you know a top five, a top ten offensive line. And see if you could stay on the field. But watching him on Sunday, Anthony, you nailed it. 
I was more concerned from a Dolphins perspective when Devontae Booker was in the game. Because Saquon had no burst. He was dropping passes. He didn't scare me. He didn't scare me. Devontae Booker came in at a 20-yard run. It's a sad tale for Saquon Barkley, but I don't ever see him living up to the billing with this franchise. How can you at this point? I know you're selling low. I'm not looking to pay him a ton of money. No way, no how. No way, no how. Who's next? Hey, JJ, what's going on? Danny from Edison. So I wanted to call. I'm I'm watching the Patriots and the Bills last night. And um, listen, for the Jets fan, I'm sure you could do what I'm about to do with the defensive side of the ball as well and think about how crazy the differences are between the teams. But for me as a Giant fan, watching last night that offensive line I mean, when you look at how miserable the Giants are trying to run the football, even when when the other team doesn't know they're going to do it, watching the offensive line of the Patriots, it goes to show you, yeah, they got some pretty shitty talent on there. And last year, you know, I'm talking about the Giants, obviously. Last year, you know, I thought to myself at the end of the year, hey, three guys I'm excited about. Andrew Thomas at left tackle, Nick Gates at center, and Shane Lemieux at guard. And you know what? Like, it sucks that two of those guys went out pretty much – before the season even started. I think Nick Gates maybe the first game or second game. But, but then I, I realized last night watching that game, it is more than that. It is more than a lack of talent, which they certainly have a lack of talent for Giants. But watching the precision that they co- that New England coaches that line, like like that is more than talent, man. That is coaching. Coaching, coaching, coaching. The, the, the Think about the movement. I was so impressed with the amount of movement on the line, the pulling, the, you know, the guys moving from one place to another at the perfect time, the exact time. The blocks are in perfect synchronicity. The holes are right where they're supposed to be. Everything. Watching that, I'm like, man, like, I never get to watch football like that when I watch these New York football teams, man. They are just, it was, I never watch football like that with many teams, but it just was like an eye-opener, man, that this is so much of this is coaching. And like, you know what, Joe Judge... I know he's not responsible for the offensive line or whatever, but just the whole coaching staff. Like, it is just, it is horrible watching this team and watching a team like New England. It just, uh, it just made me sick to my stomach because it just made me realize how far away this team is from being anything close to that. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm just sitting here in awe. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I was riding the Patriots plus three, and, plus three and a half. I grabbed it early in the week because I knew that half point was going to go away. And then I realized, you know what? I probably ain't going to need it. And we didn't because the Patriots are the Patriots. Sucks, but you know what? It's also beautiful in its own way. All right. Take care, brother. Danny, outstanding phone call. And watching that game last night, you could tell how much satisfaction Bill Belichick received out of winning a game in which his quarterback only, what, threw three passes throughout the entire game? And yet they find a way to win with the quarterback doing as little as he did. It was like literally out of the Navy playbook. And I don't know if Bill Belichick was trolling before the game wearing the Navy mask, knowing that there were going to be 50 and 60 mile an hour winds up in Orchard Park, New York. But it just goes to show New England is prepared for any circumstance, any situation. Win at all costs. It bothers me to no end. They had a monster offseason. They brought back Trent Brown. 
He's a beast. He's going to get paid a ton of money in the offseason. Matthew Judon, best free agent signing out of anybody with the impact he has had on that New England defense. They bring back Kyle Van Oy. He knows exactly what Bill Belichick and company are looking to do. Listen, the Patriots have the look and have the feel of those old school New England teams. Before Brady was Brady. And that's not to compare Mac Jones to Tom Brady in any way. But the blueprint, the formula, run the football, play defense, and be incredibly well coached, it's all there. And it's going to make New England insanely dangerous come postseason time. Now, Buffalo will get another chance. They'll play the game, obviously, where, you know, the conditions are going to be much better and they can run the sort of offense that they want to run. Buffalo can't run the ball. That's why the minute I heard about 50 and 60 mile an hour wins, I was not feeling particularly good about my bet that I had made earlier in the week. I'm just glad I didn't include it in the super contest. And listen, from a giant jet perspective, thinking about where the Patriots are and thinking about where those two teams are, oh my goodness. That's like taking a piece of filet mignon, medium rare, and comparing it to you know, this like old beef patty that had been in the freezer for like two weeks and, and trying to say it's on a, a, a level playing field as far as the caliber and quality of meat. Yeah, the Giants are right now a total, total mess. And it looks like it's going to be Jake Fromm, a quarterback. Chargers should win that game by like 14 to 17 points at least. But... We know one thing's for certain. They're the Chargers. That's the only thing I'm going to say. Be careful there. They are the Chargers. All right, who's next? Hey, JJ. This is Aaron from Iowa. Um, did you listen to the Aaron Boone on RTC2 from a few weeks ago? I listened to it, and I think it was okay, but I want to know your reaction if you listened to it. And, yeah, the Aaron Boone reactions that you had like, to his press conferences and stuff, those are some of the funniest content on New York, New York. So I want to know what you thought of Aaron Boone on RTC. Thanks. Aaron, I listened to Aaron Boone on the fellas podcast and the fellas did a great job with him. Listen, obviously he and CC are very tight. Ruko, who I love is doing the games. They get a lot of personality out of Aaron. And despite my major frustrations with Aaron Boone running the team. And my opinion on this was crystal clear. I didn't want him back. I didn't think he deserved an extension. He comes across as a very engaging, likable guy. That was my takeaway in listening to the podcast. I think he and the Yankee brass are a little bit in la-la land for where they've been over the last few years. And what do you want Aaron to say to the guys? I don't deserve an extension. He knows full well there are a lot of fans who didn't want him back. He didn't deserve to come back. Whenever this season starts, whenever the Yankees have a team on the field, there's got to be different results. (laughs) Or they're going to continue to look like a joke. But the most interesting takeaway I got from that interview was his thoughts on the evolution of John Carlos Stanton, which I think has been cool to watch from a Yankee perspective. Stanton going from a guy who's getting booed out of the building Stanton going from being a guy who maybe didn't feel totally comfortable being a Yankee 
the end of last year, that was the one guy you wanted up at the plate. He was as dialed in as anybody in baseball and carried the Yankees over the final month of the year. All right, trivia time. We've been red hot. We got to continue our winning ways, like the Miami Dolphins, you know? We were down out. Now we are rallying and rallying in a big way. So let's keep the trivia rally coming. What do we got? Hello, JJ. This is Terry. I'm calling from Florida and calling in the questions for my brother Larry, who's a little under the weather tonight. Here's his two trivia questions. Only two rookie quarterbacks in NFL history have had a three-game winning streak with each of the three wins by 20 points or more. Question two is three players in NFL history have had a season with all of the following. 1,000 yards receiving, five receiving touchdowns, and five rushing touchdowns. That's all. Thanks, J.J. Bye. Those are a couple of doozies right there. Those are a couple of doozies. And first off, the great Larry in Florida, I hope that you're feeling better. I love the fact that the dedication from the family that we have the little tie-in right there. I mean, that's when you know you're a loyalist to this podcast in New York, New York. Um, I think I'm going to have a really hard time with these. I'll give you my answer when we come back. Well, the Florida boys may have stumped me here. Two rookie quarterbacks, three straight wins at 20-plus points or more. You got to think of rookie quarterbacks that have won a lot of games. You got to think of rookie quarterbacks that have been on some really good teams. So, Rudy, guess one. Is it Ben Roethlisberger? <laughs> wow. Hearing the X right out of the gate, never what you want to hear. Uh, I'm going to go to guess two right out of the gate, and then I am, I think, completely out of answers, which is not a good thing. Is guest number two, Mac Jones? See, I knew there was a tie-in there from what the Florida boys were trying to do. Mac Jones, number one. Okay, so one down, one to go. You know, I was fairly confident in Big Ben. I thought Big Ben was the guy. All right, the other one I'm going to throw at you, Saruti. Is it Russell Wilson? Wow, I'm surprised by that. I know Seattle had a really good defense. However, Seattle has always been a team that's played a whole lot of close games. So that's why I was thinking it was Roethlisberger in the 2004 season. I'm actually shocked I ended up getting both of those, by the way. Now this next one, this is where it's really, really, really going to get ugly. Okay. Three players, 1,000 yards receiving. Five touchdowns, five rushing touchdowns, at least. All right, Saruti, guess one here. Ladanian Tomlinson. No. Now, to help me here, Saruti, with this question, are we talking far more about a running back or are we talking about some receivers that might be in this mix? Well... We have one receiver and two running backs. Okay. The receiver one of them, that... there's a reason, there's a timeliness to this. All right. This, this stat has actually been, um, it's kind of been all over the place too. It's a popular stat I've seen on some of the pregame shows. Is the receiver Tyreek Hill? <laughs> wow. Not good. I knew this question was going to be a pain in the ass. I'm surprised because this is this is a very relevant question. The guy has just done it, um, and he's everybody's favorite, you know, 
kind of like jack of all trades player in the NFL right now. Oh man. So very recent. Is it Debo Samuel? Okay. That hint was very, very uh, important, my friend. Significant to some. Because I was, you know what it is? Debo being hurt kind of didn't have me in Debo Samuel mode. Does that make sense? Or? No, yeah. You, you, you did miss the last game, and they missed um, him. Okay. So now I need two other players here. Two other players. And these are running backs, correct? Both running backs, yep. Both running backs. Hmm. What if I give you this hint? One in the 90s, one in the 80s. I like that. One in the 90s, one in the 80s. My 90s running back, is that Emmett Smith? <laughs> it's not Emmett. Okay. It's not Emmett. AFC or an NFC running back? Both are NFC. Both in the NFC. Okay. Both in the NFC. Uh, is Eric Dickerson one? This is this is a sad performance for me. I'm throwing out two more gases and I'm waving the white flag on this. Listen, I, when you stumped, you stumped, and you know you stumped. Holy moly, this is a tough question. This is a tough question. Ricky Waters? <laughs> All right, I'm throwing out one more guess and then I'm done. I'm completely done. I don't, I don't even know where to go here. Let, let, me, give you, uh, let me give you another hint. Um, both Super Bowl champs. Okay. Um, let's see. That's another hint I can give you that won't give it away. They're not both Hall of Famers. One of them's a Hall of Famer. One of them played for the 49ers. 49ers then's got to be Roger Craig. Correct. There you go. That one gave it away. Okay. And the, the other one is a Hall of Famer. This guy's a Hall of Famer. One Hall of the best of running backs of all time. Walter Payton. Walter Payton. <laughs> now, this is the Walter. 90s. This is the 90s. Late 90s. Late 90s. NFC running back. NFC, this was his first year on the team, too. And they did some big things. First year on the team. 90s running back in the NFC. It's not Emmett. Oh, Marshall Falk. There we go. The Florida boys give credit where credit is due. Complete me. Completely stumped me on that question. All right, I got one more. Let's hear one more. Aloha, JJ Charlie from Elmhurst. I'm calling in from calling you from Hawaii. Uh, I want to participate on your JJ trivia Tuesday. Uh, before I get into today's, I'm here because of the um, Today's uh, Tuesday, December 7th, is the 80th year of the event on Pearl Harbor. That's the reason why I'm here. Uh, we could talk about that probably in the near future when we meet again. Why, Charlie, why you went there. Uh, da, 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 da. But just uh, yes, I want to send my uh, respect and tribute to what happened there 80 years ago. So let's get to the fun stuff. Trivia. So this is movie trivia. Uh, sports related, so I hope you get it. So I hope you see anger management, Adam Sandler, Jack Nicholson vehicle. So here it is. What what two New York Yankees player made a cameo appearance during that when Adam Sandler's character 
proposed to Marissa Tommy's character in that towards the end of the scene at the old Yankee Stadium. Who are the two New York Yankees made a cameo appearance? And bonus answer. And bonus answer for who are the Yankees facing on that particular night? So two New York two New York Yankees uh, players name and and the team the Yankees are facing. So that's about it. Hope you get it, JJ. Bye-bye. This is a movie I have not seen in a long, long time. And it's a great one. Adam Sandler, Jack, Marissa Tomei, I Feel Pretty, Also Pretty. Love it. The two Yankees in that movie. Yikes. I don't think I know this. Because I haven't seen it in a long, long time. Trudy, my guess here, the first guess I'm throwing out there is guess one, Roger Clemens. See, I had a feeling it was The Rocket. Okay. I remember The Rocket being in the movie. The second guy. The second guy. Oh, man. Mm. Movie came out in 2003. I, it was 2000 Yankees. Is it Jorge Posada? <laughs> was not Posada. Oh, I think I know who it is. And now I feel the confidence. Is it Bernie Williams? <laughs> was not Bernie. I was like, I was wishy-washy on Posada. <laughs> I was very confident with Bernie. It's, I can't believe you're not. This is, uh, he's the, the Yankee. He's Mr. Yankee. Oh, it's Cheater. It's yeah, Cheater. There we go. Yeah, you know what, though? I didn't think Jeter was... Uh, I kind of thought Jeter was kind of too big at that point to do movie cameos, to be honest with you. No, I guess not. No. And so then, who was Jeter... The I, I, you know what? It is Jeter and Roger Clemens. I, I, for some reason, I vividly remember Roger Clemens. Now, the team they were playing that night... Oh, my God. I have no idea. Is it the Red Sox? <laughs> All right, I remembered that. I wasn't positive, but... Well done. I'm glad that I got Clemens. Good question. Charles. It's a tough question, but I guess the three answers are actually kind of obvious, right? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I feel like I got the tough part and I missed the easy part because Jeter is the obvious guess and the one to throw in there with ease. So, you know. Now it's time for a re- rewatch of uh, definitely, definitely time for a rewatch of Anger Management. And Charlie, listen, goes without saying, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. So. We always remember on December the 7th. So that's incredible stuff that you're in Pearl Harbor right now, paying tribute to our uh, fallen heroes. Incredible stuff. And on a much lighter note, the Rewatchables podcast with Simmons and Kimmel doing Saturday Night Fever. If you're a New Yorker, that's, that's one of those movies. If you're a New Yorker and you haven't seen Saturday Night Fever, go watch Saturday Night Fever. Travolta, it's old school Brooklyn, 70s Brooklyn, an absolute must. We got to get Travolta on the podcast. Uh, I don't know how into sports he is, but I don't really care. We got to, that, that might be one of my uh, crazy requests to Allison Turner over the next six months. Let's get John Travolta on the show. He's going to get the, uh, he's going to get the request. Be like, are you kidding me? New York, New York. What the hell do they want me on for? This is a method to my madness. All right. My main man, Coach Crafton, who is doing a killer job at Maryland Eastern Shore. They were right there with UConn the other day. Local guy. We love seeing local guys doing big things. He's up next. So I always love when I can get introduced to 
a basketball lifer, a Brooklyn guy, and a guy <laughs> who is leaving a mark on a program where you go from being a team that's getting paid to the team that nobody wants to play because you make their life a living hell. So the head coach of Maryland Eastern Shore, my dude, Jason Crafton. Welcome to New York, New York, buddy. What's happening, man? New York, New York in the house, man. Always good to be a part of anything with some New York flavor on it. So, John, appreciate you having me and uh, looking forward to doing the show. Well, what do you miss the most? Being down in Maryland and not getting to make as many New York trips. What do you miss the most about your New York way of life from back then? <laughs> well, you know, in New York, you just you, you always have you always have access to stuff. You know what I mean? So, like, you know, you have access to getting a good suit. You got access to getting shoes. You got access to great restaurants, good meals. You got access to 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 entertainment. You got just the access that you have in New York to. Um, you know, immediately get great things is, is like no other. You know what I mean? So uh, great experiences and, and uh, great things in New York. So uh, love New York and, uh, you know, excited to always bring my team back there as much as we can. We're coming back again in late December to play Columbia. Uh, looking forward to it. Well, hopefully they have some like late night pizza or bagels <laughs> or whatever your cuisine of choice may be. Because, Coach, you, you're doing a great thing at your program. I'm watching the Syracuse-Indiana game. The other night, I'm at Knicks Nets, and I keep seeing cutaways to the UConn game. And yeah. Coach Hurley and I go way back. I did a bunch of their games way back in the day when he was at Wagner College. So I know how intense he can get. I'm sure there was a whole lot of yelling and screaming from Dan Hurley when you got like a one or two point game uh, early in the second half and your boys are hanging around. Is that a game that even after a loss, you play in a top 25 team, you feel you can take a lot of positives from? I think you always can take positives anytime you go out versus, you know, a nationally rated opponent and, and perform well, um, you know, especially in our situation. You know, that was the best performance in the history of the program against a ranked opponent. So um, it definitely strides in the right direction. I thought our guys battled. It was funny. Steve Lapis was saying he was like, you guys in the press in the pregame conversation when he was talking to them, he, he said I was trying to see if they were a little nervous. And he was like, they were stone cold, like stone faced, like, you know, like they were ready to go. And, and uh, that's the thing I was most proud of is our guys. You know, we, we don't we don't back down from anybody. You know, we told them in the pregame, well, we would we would play that game outside in a, a you know, in a, a Dykeman or Rucker, you know, with the snow, you know, with an outdoor ball, rubber ball we and chain nets. Our, our season was canceled last year. So. It doesn't really matter who the opponent is. We're going to go out there and we're going to try to put on the best performance to win as we possibly can. Talk me through that. Last year, obviously, a terrible year for everybody. Uh, college basketball, college sports in general were a mess. How crushing was that for you? As a guy who loves basketball, you love teaching, you love being part of a program, to basically not play in 2020, 2021. Was that like as bad as it gets? Huge challenge, you know. I think... Uh... <laughs> You know, I don't know. There's, there's, there's worse things that could happen in life. But for a basketball player, you know, I think it's either getting your season canceled or, or getting injured. You know, <laughs> and being out for, a, for, for a year. So, um, it was definitely a hard hit for our program. I think one of the reasons why we're so close and so tight is that during that time, you know, we cried together, we, we, we mourned together. You know, what I mean, like we had, we had our moments where we just, you know, really were emotional with the, the, the whole. Um, you know, things that were going on, not being able to participate, not being able to play, not being able to compete, not being able to practice. You know, these guys are cooped up in their dorms under long quarantines, you know, um, as the school was being extra cautious uh, to, due to COVID. So 
Um, it was a, a tough year for us, but, you know, we're so excited to get back out there. So a lot of that anger and that edge and that, that, that extreme level of toughness that you see is not just our, you know, program foundation of our tenacity. It's also, you know, those guys just being excited to get out there and play again. You spent a lot of time working with Jay Wright. What was the biggest lesson watching him do his thing now as you do your thing as a head coach that you've kind of taken from him? Jay taught me, you know, uh, the, that everything is in the details. You know, that success is in Even the details. Even the suits, right, coach? Even yeah, the suits. yeah, man. Everything matters. The, 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 the appearance matters. The looks matter. The, the, the you know, um, you know the, just the, the communicating with the players, the relationships with the administration, with the alums, bringing people back together. You know, the logos, you know, the practice setup, the, the video, the, the, the signage, the theme, um, you know, everything. You know, how we room guys on the road, uh, on road trips, you know, how we eat, you know, everything we do matters. And I think that's what makes him one of the most um, elite coaches in the profession is that he really puts time into everything. And uh, I strive to be the same way. You have a favorite moment from working on that Villanova staff? Oh, yeah. My, 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 well, I would say the, the realest moment was when there was a snowstorm. And this is back in the VHS days when, you know, these new, these new age video coordinators, they got all this technology where you can get a game offline and just download it. I'm the throwback early 2000s guy where you had to wait for the FedEx package to come. Take oh, the man. VHS tape, and you, you were still I mean? on VHS, bro. <laughs> oh, holy yeah, moly. Slice it up. So we had a game coming up against like uh, – LaSalle, and we were waiting for James Madison's because uh, LaSalle wasn't going to give us the tape. So James Madison had put it in the mail, and it was a snowstorm. It got stuck in the mail, and everybody was on edge because they knew that we weren't going to get the tape because <laughs> everything was shut down with the mail services. And uh, one of the probably the realest moments in my career was when Coach said to me, you know, when I said, hey, you know, we didn't get the tape, you know, snowstorm hit, and he was like, he was like, no excuses. We just get it done. He was like, don't come to me with excuses. You know, just get it done. And I think what was cool about that was it, it was it wasn't he knew that there was a snowstorm. He knew that there was, you know, things that got in the way and interfered. But the way the mindset that he cultivated in me at a young age was, you know, at Villanova, you know, we don't make excuses. We just get it done. We always find a way. And and that was the the the, the takeaway from that. And I've applied that. It's on my door. No excuses. Just get it done. I've applied that to everything that we do. And uh, I think, you know, we try to be a no-excuse program. That's why you see us out there playing against UConn and just trying to find a way to win, even if it means changing our offense in the game. <laughs> you know? Would you say for you personally, Jay Wright, and your time with the Naval Academy is kind of what has shaped you most as a head coach? I think all the places I've been, there's some type of takeaways, right? So with Jay, it's like he's, he's such a detail-oriented guy at the Naval Academy, the discipline and the organization uh, from being at a place like that uh, really resonates with how I do things. Uh, you know, being a head coach back at my alma mater at Nyack College at Division II, like gave me a chance to kind of put some things in action on a smaller scale. And, and then the short time I spent with the 76ers working in the G League and doing some player development gave me a look at how the whole NBA thing works. So I think we put all those things together. We put in a pot, we stir it up. And, and that's kind of how we, you know, do things today and, uh, and use all those experiences that come to life and what I'm doing now. You mentioned your time with the G League. Has that made things a total mess for college coaches with the transfer rules being the way that they are? Like, I'm watching Syracuse tonight. Swider was at Villanova. Now, all of a sudden, he's at Cuse. Richmond was at Cuse. Now, he's at Seton Hall. It's like turned into like the wild, wild west for even these big programs, coach. 
So when you take it down to your level, like has that made things, the G League, the transfer rules, is it that much more challenging now starting a program and, you know, having to be on edge basically about who's coming and going basically year to year? I, I think that, you know, the challenging part for my level and, and this level and this in, this particular institution where we're trying to, you know, rebuild a uh, a broken APR, you know, and, and trying to retain players, you know, Maryland Shore historically has not been good. You know, it's had bad APRs in men's basketball, bad retention rates in terms of keeping uh, players here. So I think when you look at the new transfer rule, that's one of the biggest challenges now with kids not being able, not having the penalty of having to sit out. They can just transfer whenever they want and just, you know, not have to sit out anymore. They can just go to the next school and play with the one-time transfer exception now. So that puts even more pressure on us as an institution and as a, as a coaching staff to try to provide the best experience that we possibly can. Um, you know, that really for us at our level is our biggest challenge, is that transfer rule. The G League stuff, you got to talk to the higher level guys about that. <laughs> you know, that that's that's more for, for the higher level um, high major and, you know, coaches that they're dealing more with that than we are at this level. You know, coach, I think about it. Maybe it's because I'm biased and I went to Syracuse. I get the appeal of wanting to get paid right away and like, you know, getting into the league and getting those sort of royalties coming your way. But you're the big man on Villanova. You're the big man on Syracuse. Like, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm outdated. I, I would want that, dude. Like, I can't imagine what it's like to be like Buddy Beheim walking around that campus right about now. You know what I mean, dude? Like, if I'm good enough, if I'm confident enough in my abilities, I'm going and playing college ball for a year or two. And I'm going to be the dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's still some benefits to the college experience and, and, and kind of you know, maturing and, and, and getting that chance to be on a college campus and all those types of things. And, you know, but the appeal of going and getting paid right away obviously is there, you know, so it's a challenge, you know, it's something that I think the NCAA is trying to work through and, and uh, it's still, I, I don't think it's been figured out completely yet. You know? <laughs> so that's the journey on both sides of the spectrum. Did you have a favorite guy growing up? Were you a Nick fan as a kid? Growing up, super duper Nick fan. I'm talking nice. about throwback 1990s. John Starks, you know, uh, the dunk, you know. You know, I get sick and tired of hearing about the dunk, though. (laughs) As great as it was, Coach, I get haunted by the fact that they lose four straight uh, games to the Bulls. And I think Charles Smith just missed another layup, by the way. Charles Smith, I mean, yeah, I mean, the pump fake nightmare, going up, going up, getting your stuff punched. All you got to do is kick it out. We probably win the game. But, you know, (laughs) today's generation doesn't know if you say, don't Charles Smith that play. They don't, they don't know what that's all about. But true New Yorkers, we know that's when Charles Smith should have just kicked it out and let somebody win the game instead of getting the shot beat up on the glass six, seven times. But that's irrelevant. But, but the Charles Oakley, the Anthony Masons, big Patrick Ewan, Mark Jackson, you know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, those guys created a toughness um, that really that, – that only New Yorkers could embrace, man. You know, and I, I think that I grew up in that era and I really love New York Knicks, in-your-face, tough basketball. And, uh, you know, I actually try to I actually showed my team some clips before our Lehigh game the other night of uh, <laughs> of the old school New York Knicks team and just how tough they were. And, and we're really trying to instill that type of tough mentality in a game today where they called the game totally different. You know, I was gonna say, <laughs> like, good, like, like, if you tried to play the way the 93 and 94 Knicks played, you'd have your walk ons in the game in about five minutes. I don't yeah. know. You know, you'd be you, you'd be down players real quick. Final one. You've been around basketball a long time. So you've seen a lot of changes within the game. 90s Knicks are a perfect example of that. You know, they're a team that's playing three bigs. There's, there's not a lot of spacing on the floor. 
does it amaze you the way like the game has kind of shifted where you got to be able to stretch the floor, your bigs for the most part got to be able to shoot it. Shooting is that like this unbelievable premium. Has that like philosophy for you as a coach kind of changed from like when you were at Nova to when you were at Nyack to where you're at right now? Like, have you sensed that evolution? Oh, definitely. I think it's funny when, when I was, you know, doing the NBA thing for a little bit, you know, if you took a mid-range shot, a lot of times they take you out the game. <laughs> like, so, you know, we come up a lot in the college game and we teach the mid-range, you know, and we, and we talk about the fundamentals of the, the, the mid-range shot and things like that. In the pro game, it's all about threes, dunks, free throws, right? Trying to put yourself in a chance to get those are the three highest percentage shots, you know? So I think that really has uh, evolved in the college game. And I think you see what Golden State has done and what Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and those guys have done is they, they've sped the game up and they've turned it into a spread offense thing where everyone wants to make the threes and shoot the threes. For us, you know, we now are second in the league in three-point shots made per game. Two years ago, the team I had couldn't throw it in the, in the ocean. You know, we were, so we we could defend and we were one of the top defensive teams that we couldn't shoot. So we've added some skill to our team. We have the ability to spread the floor and go five out, which in a game against UConn makes it very challenging for them to defend us. Because now we put you in a situation where we're pulling your big against away from the basket and putting them in uncharted, uncomfortable territory. So we did the same thing against St. Joe's. Unfortunately, we couldn't pull that one off, lost that at the buzzer. So I, I, the game has evolved and we've evolved with it as coaches. And I have personally. And we're playing a lot of five-out basketball right now, spreading the floor, and that's giving us a chance to be in games on top of being one of the better defensive teams in the country. You know, Coach, we have a mutual buddy, the great John Lefterakis. He's sending me emails from UConn fans <laughs> throwing praise your way for the way – that's got to be cool, right? <laughs> like, I, I know you lost the game. I know you want to win the game. That, that fan base is – is, they're as intense as it gets. They don't throw a lot of praise the way of opposing coaches – you come in and fight them to the death, and I'm getting emails after the fact. That's kind of cool, Coach. Not you know, I, we, we shared that with our team, and we, we we were really excited about the fact that we, on a, a national stage, that we didn't just compete, that we represented our program with class. You know, we, we played with toughness. We scrapped. You know, it's a two-possession game in the last 90 seconds. You know, um, we had a chance to win. We missed some free throws down the stretch. The handshake with Coach Hurley was not a friendly one. He was like, we got to pay you $85,000 still. And this was supposed to be a night off, you know, for them. So, you know, um, getting money games right now is extremely hard. But the fans behind our bench, um, they, they the, the tide changed. And we saw a situation. It was almost like Rocky versus Drago, Rocky Four, where the, the fans became Rocky fans in Russia. You know, we were at UConn, and there was like a dead silence. And the UConn fans started cheering for the Maryland Eastern Shore team. So that was pretty cool. We, we, take, we changed the tide, a la Rocky versus Drago in Rocky Four. We brought that that energy uh, to that game. And, and I think it was a testament to how hard our guys played and how shocked the fans were that a, a program that was picked dead last in the country, you know, was going toe-to-toe with the 17th-ranked UConn Huskies, um, you know, in the last 90 seconds. Coach, go luck scheduling next year. That's all I'm going to do. <laughs> go luck. I hope you had some games on, on record already because uh, you keep fighting like that, and those paid games, they're going to be uh, tougher and tougher to come by. Just saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what the fun one in New York. When we're back home in New York, we've got so many New York players and we had our own little section at the Fordham game and we were able to win that game in double overtime. Another buy game, as you know. So they had to pay us $60,000 you know, and uh, we come out with a win. Um, so just a great experience for our guys to be in those games. Historically, Mount Eastern Shore loses 30 plus in those games. You know, so, so to be able to come out here and, and uh, compete in those games to win and win one. 
Uh, we want to see if we can pick up another one along the way as well and just keep pushing this thing forward. Coach, don't schedule Syracuse anytime soon. Right? <laughs> None of that. Appreciate a couple of minutes, man. Continued success. And uh, we'll be rooting, man. Have a terrific rest of your season, all right? Thanks so much, John. Appreciate you for having me. Good stuff there from Coach. Juicy Thursday night game this week. Not going to lie. It's a juicy Thursday night game. There's a lot of playoff ramifications. Steelers coming off their big win against the Ravens. Vikings, after doing the unthinkable, losing to the Detroit Lions. I weirdly have a very strong play and lead on this game. We'll see if Jeff Money and I are sharing a brain. What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for week number 14 on a Thursday night game on December 9th. Now, it's not going to be part of my contest plays, and I really don't love the game at all, but we're picking it because it's a Thursday night game. I believe it can go either way, so with that note, I'm going to go with the underdog in that. No, I'm going to go with the Pittsburgh Steelers plus the three over the Vikings. So, again, my play on Thursday night is going to be the Pittsburgh Steelers plus the three. Okay, J.J., I'm out of here. Let's go. Uh, I will not be riding with you, Jeff Money. We are heads up going into Thursday night football. I like the Minnesota Vikings. You have the Steelers coming off the emotional win against Baltimore. You have the Vikings coming off this humiliating loss. To me, it's the perfect zig-zag type of spot. Everyone's going to want to bet the Steelers. Nobody's going to want to bet the Vikings. I'm going to lay the three with Minnesota, and I'm going to take the more desperate team. Minnesota desperately needs to win this game. So does Steelers, but I think Minnesota off of the loss to the Lions, with everybody calling for Mike Zimmer's head at this point, they need it that much more. I think they find a way to get it done. I'm on the Vikings, so a little heads-up action. Perfect segue into what we will have on Thursday. Wall of Wall Football Friday show. Joe B off his first 5-0 and week. And the boys cleaned up. That was our best collective old school, new school week. Everybody was in flago. So hopefully it's the sign of things to come over the final couple of weeks of the year. Great job by Saruti. We're back Thursday. Enjoy the next couple of days. JJ out. Be good, everybody.